Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. This podcast is brought to you in part by you, our friends and supporters at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Ba Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations, so here's a little bit about what they've done and how I know them. Today, I hope you're brimming with joy because I certainly am. Richard Lewis, 50 years, let me emphasize that, 50 years, keeping alive through in public school systems the experience, the knowledge, the connection, and the meaning of imagination in children. He's published several books. You can find them on our website, www.remarkable-educators.com. And under the show notes, all of his books and all of his many accomplishments are listed. He's started Touchstone Center, and in Touchstone Center, he's brought together all these many artists from all the different disciplines in order to help us understand, connect, and keep imagination alive in children. I'm just so happy Richard has chosen to join us, and here we go. Well, Richard, welcome. Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators, and thank you so much for joining us. So appreciate it. Well, thank you, Bob. All right. Well, I wanted, I wanted to start uh, with, a, with a little quote from your book, Living by Wonder, The Imaginative Life of Childhood, because I was just so touched by it, and I hope that it's a good introduction to what we're going to talk about today. Yes. And in, the, in a chapter called The Story the Child Keeps, there's a, a paragraph, and you wrote a paragraph, and it starts like this. In a classroom in New York City not long ago, a child was frightened by a story I told about a tree that could listen and, with its ever-changing leaves, talk to us. At first, Joel did not want to believe what I was saying. I was challenging a reality he had carefully fashioned. Then, one day, when he realized how the story could allow him the life of his own imagination, without asking him to forfeit everything he knew of this world, he wrote, It's amazing how the wind moves the trees. It moves my mind also. When I look at a tree... I feel brave and bold. When the wind blows through the trees, the trees whistle in tune for beautiful music. As I listen, I smile. However, do you bring this forth in children, this incredible world of imagination that is so evident in your 50 years of work? What inspires you you and what inspires you when you're with the children? Well, let me go back to the, the, the poem and, and, and Joel the Child. Um, I, think, I think one of the things, Bo, that, uh, that is so extraordinarily uh, exciting for me is the uh, sense that a child comes to this already equipped to be imaginative, and it's only because... Uh, in some cases, not all, but some cases, children have been told have been told that they don't have an imagination, or they can't l- see a tree, or listen to a tree, or imagine a tree the way we were speaking about here. So, 
part of my my goal, to some extent, is to help the child really overcome that fear that um, that he he can he or she can listen to the inward voice that is their imagination and allow it to come to life. Um, Again, going back to my my sense and feeling and strong sense of feeling of this is that every child is born with the capacity to imagine. It's only through, again, a variety of situations um, that they're told either, again, that they're not, not imaginative or there's been very little room in their life for this kind of thinking. And so my role or my teaching role on that level is to somehow bring back the confidence the child had initially in its own imaginative thought. So can you tell us more what you mean by somehow? I mean, is it an in-the-moment arising with a particular child or a particular class, or are there certain um, understandings or, uh, I don't know what the right word is, tricks or techniques that you have? <laughs> I don't mean to insult you here. No, no, no. I'm no, just I, trying I, I to totally understand, understand deeply what we mean by somehow, because yes. it, it almost sounds magic from out here. Yes. Well, Prior to his writing that particular poem and his particular imagery that he brought to the surface, um, it just didn't happen, obviously. Um, there was a lot of work going on initially um, in the room where I was conversing about a tree and becoming the tree myself and asking the children to imagine what it must feel like to be a tree. And there was a conversation built in and around that that duality of 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 uh, communication. So the room, if you can imagine the room with a group of children in it, in a school, um, I and I don't want. It's not anything to do with tricks or anything like that. It's really the idea where uh, I might come in with a branch as an example, a simple branch, and hold it up and begin to say, you know. I would like to bring this branch to life. I would like to get a sense that we could bring leaves to it and we could bring roots to it and somehow allow ourselves to enter into the life of the tree itself. And through this conversation, and again, you have to we have to imagine for a second that there are other children in the room and they're all part of that conversation initially. So there's lots of different inputs going on at the same time. Some children will, you know, will suddenly say, "Oh, uh, Richard, I can I can see the leaf growing on that branch or I can I can I can see uh the roots growing of the tree." And then I might push it a little bit further and say, "Well, can you see the colors of the leaf? And you can see can you see how long the roots are?" And we we keep going further and further into the into the imagery that's being suggested by my question. So a piece of writing that comes, you know, sort of that you, you shared with me on this, on this, uh, in this particular situation really came about um, in a group conversation. And I might also, as part of that conversation, before we even begin to write, I might ask everybody to, to really just for a moment gather themselves and close their eyes, and imagine that tree that we're speaking about. And then we might begin to draw the tree um, as in all of, its, all of its possibilities. And through the process of actually making a, a, an image of it, a visual image of it, uh, words begin to come to life. 
And those words, of course, will be different with every child. So there is a lot of, of um, play, I would say, play of the imagining itself that's going on within the room as we're talking so that the fear that I spoke of initially, the sense that the child might be frightened by its own imagination, slowly, slowly, hopefully evaporates. And um, what you read often can be the result. It gives all the the conversation that we were having with the children um, kind of gives an overview of the process that that we would go through in order to help the children really begin to feel comfortable at home with their their own imaginative visualizing, in this case, of the physical tree that they could imagine themselves. And then from that physical drawing, um, we might draw some more possibilities. You know, that's just for the sake of discussion. They draw a number, all the children draw their, their particular image of a tree. And I might ask a particular child to come up and talk about the drawing. And the child might have a lot of leaves on the tree that, that he or she had drawn. And I might say, well, you know, in the wintertime, can, can, you, can you kind of feel how those leaves must feel as the snow falls or uh, if there's a wind, what does the wind feel like as it as it touches the tree? And what does the tree feel like as the wind is moving through it? So we just keep opening, opening, opening up possibilities of of how our imagination can literally take a single image and let it grow and grow until each child feels comfortable to explore basically on its own. Wow, that that just sounds fantastic. Is it true across all ages? I mean, have have you what's the spectrum of ages that you've worked with in this way? Um, uh, everything from the youngest of children to the oldest of oldest. Yes, um, <laughs> it's always interesting. That's a very interesting question in terms of of um, the age because. Sometimes I've given teacher workshops, and we've done a very similar process. Um, and in 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 the same way that the child is afraid, the adult is often afraid. I would imagine they had a harder time than the children in many ways. Yes, and interestingly enough, sometimes they get so excited. Now I'm talking about the adults that we can't stop them. <laughs> it's almost as if they <laughs> rediscovered, you know, their own kind of marvelous sense of childhood and its way of perceiving. So. Um, uh, it's and, and I always comment on that. And I said, well, you know, in a way, it's it's that the link to childhood doesn't end. It, it's a continuous process, so that even though um, you were perhaps put in a position where you were being asked a question that I asked of children, that your 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 ability to, to visualize, to imagine, uh, is still there and is still as powerful as ever as it was in childhood. Let's just get your scope of work clear. I mean, I, I, I want to talk about the early years, but first I want to ask, so you basically go into schools, right, into New York City public schools. Do you go into private schools or other kinds of schooling or educational options as well, or pretty much exclusively the public schools? Well, I would say a, a large part of our work has been in the public schools, Um Basically, because I wanted to get a full spectrum of possibilities, in this case, within the city of New York, um, and a way that I could begin to see 
working with an enormous diversity of children, how we can do the very thing that we're just speaking about. But uh, I also go into school, other other kinds of schools that are not public schools. Um, I go where, wherever I'm asked to go, I'll go. And the, <laughs> the majority of the work over the years in terms of the Touchstone Center has been in the public schools, yes. And when you go in, is it for a class period or are you there for an extended week or a whole semester? I mean, how does it work in terms of time with a particular class or group of children? It's a very good question. Um, most of the work that we did in the past, uh, it's changed a little bit now because uh, I've I've moved into another phase of my life. But um, most of the work that we've done is usually done collaboratively with other artists. I work with visual artists and theater people and dance people. Uh, so we work as a team, and we go in often for long-term residencies. Um, and a lot of the explorations that we've done are... Um, based on very elemental themes and images, the sea, the sky, the earth, language, uh, the birth of, of all these qualities of, of our human sense of perception and imagining. And um, so we have the long-term projects, which sometimes go from 10 to 15 weeks, once a week. We work very collaboratively with the teacher so that whatever we do in the classroom um, that hopefully he or she will then pick up during the week when we're not there and explore it with the children as well. And prior to our working with the, ver the variety of classrooms that we worked with, um, we try to give some workshops for the teachers ahead of time so that they understand the process that we're going to go through. And then sometimes even workshops after we've actually left that particular classroom to kind of bring it all together. Now, one thing that we've done pretty much through all the residencies that we've we uh, completed in the schools is we would publish a little booklet of writings that all the children have done over the over that particular period of time, and each child gets a little booklet. And then on the very last day, we often share the thoughts and writings that the children have put on into paper onto paper. And um, there's often a lot of visual material as well, paintings, clay work. Uh, there's, in many cases, we've done movement and theater things, so that that it, it's interdisciplinary in the best sense of the word. Tell us about tell us a little bit about the teamwork among these various artists. Do you have get together beforehand? Do you have sort of professional rehearsals as to how you're going to approach it? Do you talk about the particular demographic uh, that you're about to engage? Good question. The school system. I mean, how 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 do you go about it as a team? I would say. Uh, again, on a general sense, we do a lot of work ahead of time. Um, we do a lot of thinking, planning, um, talking. We constantly, even during the the, the residency process, uh, say the 10 week that we're there in a particular classroom, often after the class has ended, we find a quiet place and we talk and we go over what we've done. So there's a lot of... A lot of um, back door, back, in a sense, behind the scenes work that goes on um, as we work, as we go into the classroom and before we go into the classroom. Um, so in, in the deepest and best sense, we're, we're collaborating with each other and collaborating with the teacher and the children in the classroom. So eventually what begins to happen is that we're all doing this together. 
the adults and the children working together towards uh, a specific realization of an image or realization of a theme and so on. So yes, to answer your question simply, there's a, there's a lot of work ahead of time uh, and a lot of work post-processing post, uh, uh, going on as well. This is just so, I'm just sitting here just so excited and, and just the wonder of it all. Peel back for me. Let's go back the 50 years when you started all this. What drew you to it? And just run us through, in a kind of brief way, the history of Touchstone and your history and your involvement in this. Because, okay, I, you know, I've been around in this field a long time as well, and I've just never heard of such a great program, especially in the public school systems. Yes. Maybe Marnie Binder up in Toronto has something similar going, but not like this. So give us a little history here, Richard. Well, um, let me let me go back to just some of the essentials w which sort of started the whole process. Um, I, I, in my 20s, uh, I was sort of floundering around a little bit, thinking about what I wanted to do. I had studied music composition in college. I had originally started in philosophy, worked into English literature and then music, and I had all these different avenues of, of, uh, of interests. And what eventually began to happen after I graduated from college um, is that um, I did a number of different things that had nothing to do with education, a lot to do with particular things that I was still pursuing, uh, which was in terms of music composition, in terms of writing, so on. In any case, one thing kind of led to another. And uh, <clears throat> I was working at the time for a publisher in New York here, Simon and & Schuster. And um, <clears throat> I I, I only can say this because I think this is truly what happened. I got a kind of insight one day uh, that when I was walking in Central Park that I should be listening to children. And um, I don't know where that particular intuitive insight came, but I, were, I, I acted upon it and asked a friend if he knew of any place that I could go to begin working with children. And sure enough, he said to me um, that he knew of a, a, a art center in, in New Jersey, Englewood, New Jersey, where they might be interested. So one thing kind of le again led to another. I applied uh, to a, for their position there to teach something dealing with literature. And um, what, what happened is that they scheduled a, a whole series of literature classes uh, with a group of children between, I would say it was between 8 and 11, 8 and 12, on a Saturday morning in the back of an antique store. And I came in with a whole curriculum, so to speak, of what I was going to teach about English and about storytelling and all that, poetry. And I, I could see within the first five minutes that there was this glazed look. <laughs> there it is, right? Here he comes, another lecture. Huh? I thought, oh, no, <laughs> I'm doing the wrong thing. <laughs> and, really? Well, so sensitive of you. So many so many people just don't notice the glaze and just and, blow right through it. Right. <laughs> so I, I quickly did a turnaround, and I thought to myself, well, I think I should begin to ask some questions. <laughs> and I asked a very simple question. I said, how did you get here today? 
and they began to tell me, well, some of them walked here and some of them were driven here and some of them, their parents, um, you know, walked with them or some of them walked by themselves. In any case, I realized as they were talking and as they were answering the question, their eyes literally lit up as if, oh, you're asking us a question. And, uh, and I <laughs> yes. think well, that, was the, that was the beginning of my realizing that, um, that I, my role was to be both a listener and an advocate of the things that the children were seeing and feeling to help them bring it alive for themselves as, it, as they were bringing it alive for me. And in that process, and literally I did, you know, a complete turnaround. So what all the papers that I had had to work with and read from, I basically put, in, put them aside. And we just began to talk about things that, that they were interested in, um, their dreams, the things that they saw, the things that they felt, um, went on and on for any number of weeks. And it was out of that that um, I really began to see um, – something in terms of my future, where I could possibly go with um, the the deep interest that children seem to show when you showed an interest in them. And overlaid upon that was the my concern for the almost the deeper poetic imaginative world that they that they were bringing out as we were speaking. And uh, I think it took me one step further, which was how do we reach this poetic quality of imagination within each child? And in and around that, my sense that every child has that from birth. And if that's the case, why does it not stay with children? And why does it somehow look be looked upon as, a, as an entity in education that is not supposedly teachable or even part of the so-called curriculum. So that was the beginning. And, and I could go on further, obviously, into all the other pieces of the puzzle where it finally um, shaped itself. But um, the thing that it actually did for me after that particular experience is that I decided I wanted to go around the world and um, see if my sense of childhood was correct in terms that no matter where I would go around the world, that children everywhere had this innate quality of, of the imagination, and in particular, a poetic sense of their imagination. And out of that grew a number of books. One was called Miracles, which was a collection of poems written by children uh, from English-speaking countries, which was published by the very place that I was working at when I had my momentary insight in Central Park, Simon and & Schuster. And that was followed by another book called Journeys, which is prose by children from uh, all over the English-speaking world and so on. So that was, that was sort of the, the beginning process um, of, of kind of, I guess, kind of focusing on the nature of the imaginative process, but the, in the deeper sense, the nature of childhood and its capacity to, to imagine and the need for the imagination in the deepest sense. Richard, when you say something came alive in you, I wonder if you could tell us what, how you've grown in your sense of self as a person, mm -hmm. 
We might even reach deeply and say into your being qualities, into your consciousness. Has this way of living and working and being in the world, how has this affected you? Um, I would say probably in the in the deepest sense, it it has it's become the central part of my life, and it's affected me in the way that um, I I really perceive the world around me. Uh, I would say to kind of answer the question in a, in a, in, a, in an arc of being, if I could put it that way, that um, I begin to I've begun to see or I began to see. A, a sense that the imagination in childhood is not something we give up within childhood as we move through various parts of our lives, that it, in fact, it's, a, it's an entity of growth that um, no matter what age you are, it's continually there. And if you know that it's there, then the question is, how do you preserve it? How do you keep it alive? How do you allow it to be something that becomes central to your sense of perception? So it's it's absolutely been not only central, but it's been a way in which I'm able to encompass um, a sense of human growth uh, and a sense of what it means, I guess, on some uh, other kind of a level, the sense of what it means to be a human being. Um, in the best sense of that. Yeah, you know, I've also, um, as you know, been involved deeply in working and I don't want to say working, just being with children and learning uh, in the relationship with them. And I have found it changed everything, including my relationship with my wife, with nature, with, with the mystery and wonder of the world. I mean, really right down to my toes. And I, I don't mean this simply intellectually at all. Yes. Uh, kind of as a whole way of being in the world. It's just so powerful, isn't it? Oh, it's absolutely, absolutely. And um, in, in a way, what it's done is that uh, it's reconfigured uh, my sense of, of childhood learning and uh, the idea that perhaps we're doing it backwards so much of the time. We're bringing children perhaps too quickly to a kind of um, sense of factuality where they lose too quickly their sense of play, their sense of imagining, their sense of the, of the poetic relationship they have with the world. And in a, again, in a deeper sense, the, the biological source and root of the imagination being something that is not, you know, simply a piece of, of, human thought that is sort of added on for good measure, but is <clears throat> central to how, uh, how we think and how we perceive the world around us. It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective, often featuring a wise fool or trickster animal. They can be humorous, with many shades of meaning shining through the story. I have told teaching stories for the past 40 years, with great effect, not only for the listener, but for me, as I have learned so much about myself through recounting these stories. The Smuggler Time and again the wise fool passed from Persia to Greece on donkey back. Every time he had two panniers of straw, and trudged back without them. Every time the guards searched him for contraband, 
they never found any. What are you carrying? they asked. I am a smuggler. Years later, more and more prosperous in appearance, the wise fool moved to Egypt. One of the customs men met him there. Tell me, now that you are out of the jurisdiction of Greece and Persia, living here in such luxury, what was it that you were smuggling when we could never catch you? Donkeys. Let's have some fun interpreting this teaching story. Become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators and you have access to our detailed comments on how this story applies to education and parenting. Of course, that's just our perspective. The fun comes with community dialogue as the many shades of the teaching story come alive. See you there. I'd like to return. You know, um, I'm you know, you know a little bit about uh, my work and Josette's work in uh, in uh, holistic human development and how we try to connect with the being qualities, the essential nature of children, and and how we see it unfolding throughout childhood, uh, really up till age twenty three. And I'm wondering, could you tell me more about some experiences with different age groups and just do you notice a different way of connecting to imagination or different opportunities or different, you might say, depth of, uh, depth, depth of exploration uh, by a given age group or anything like that? I, yeah, definitely. Um, well, certainly when I work with three and four and five-year-olds, <laughs> it doesn't take much <laughs> to start an imaginative conversation. Um, you know, I could come in with a, with a simple marble, hold it up, and I can say, um, in all earnestness, I can say, I sense that inside this marble, there are some stars that are alive. And all the children lean forward and listening in a way that they're not just only listening, but they can see the stars inside the marble. So it immediately makes me, um, I would say, understand in the best sense that the early childhood has this um, ability, flexible ability, to encompass the world where they are both the object of what we're talking about, but can grow from that object. So the stars and the marbles, just use that as an example. That conversation, I can almost guarantee, would go from where the children would be, I could maybe ask one child to come up and give the child a marble and say to her, um, um, can you take that star out of the marble and hold it up and let it shine within the room itself, and without hesitation, the child will pick up that marble and with two fingers take the star out and let it shine. And then I might ask another group of another child to take some more stars out until we have all these little stars that are focused and put within the tips of our fingers. Um, and the story can go on and on and on, obviously. Uh, I can also say, hmm, I think the stars might need some time to sleep. And then we put the stars down on the ground, on the floor, 
And as the star sleeps, it dreams. And as it dreams, we can actually go into the dream of the star. So going back to the question a little bit, I think what, what, what becomes apparent or has become apparent is that the richness of the early childhood's mind is, is almost um, incalculable. It's, it's something that I never actually, even when I began this, this work, realized the depth that the child can go in extending itself um, way beyond the pure fact of something. Uh, way beyond what we assume the child might be capable of doing. And I think it's that gift of play and that gift of of uh, allowing itself, the child allowing itself, to be mer- to merge into the very thing that we're speaking about. Uh, it's It's the best of the imaginative process in that level. Well, what happens then as the child gets older? Let's say if you're with uh, the fourth graders, like around 10 or so. Yes. What, what do you notice there? Well, when they're 10, of course, they've been told somewhere along the way, as we said earlier, as we spoke, um, you know, you can't really, you can't really become the tree um, because the tree is out there and you're here and that's the difference. Um, and I think also it's where the scientific mind sometimes um, intercepts the um, poetic mind and where the scientific mind says, well, there's reality and then there's what's not reality. And so that, that um, boundary line, so to speak, begins to make itself apparent. Well, Richard, let me interject here, be, inter, interject here for a second because – um, we've noticed in holistic education and also in holistic development, and when I say in holistic education, we noticed it from the Steiners and the Montessoris and the John Holtz right. and the many, many great educators uh, who have uh, also come from them uh, or, you know, succeeded them, I guess, is that that imagination is really alive in a very, very powerful way between 9 and 12, but it's the, generally speaking, the curriculum or what the great psychologist Alice Miller called the poisonous pedagogy Yes, that beats it down. Yes. But that when we've noticed that when we actually honor that there's even a, a if you will, a richness and a depth that comes forward in the 9 to 12 years. Have you seen anything like that at all? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm, just to extend what I was saying, um, what, what ultimately appears is that it doesn't take too long to kind of reach beyond what children have been told they should be thinking and not thinking what to imagine and not imagine um, to open up exactly what you're saying is that the richness is there. In fact, um, I worked a lot with junior high school students and I would say the richness continues even in a greater velocity at times than um, non-10-year-olds might be doing because it's going back to what I think I mentioned earlier is that that quality of thought isn't really doesn't really disappear it's going back to what you just said earlier which is i think is the curriculum basically dictates another form of thinking and that curriculum on many cases overrides the child's innate ability to think the way we're speaking 
So um, I, I agree with you 100%. It's there. It's totally there. And I'd like to extrapolate on this just a little bit because it's a basic understanding of mine, and, and again, in holistic thought, if you will, is that actually well-being, the whole movement and the whole energy towards well-being is an inexorable energy moving through us. And, it sound, and imagination is really seen as a critical field in allowing well-being to manifest. And when I say well-being, I'm talking about in the whole of the child, right. emotionally, you know, socially, in every single way. So the imagina imagination in this way is seen, like I say, as a field in the whole quality of well-being that lives in each of us. Yes. And I think, I think going back to that quality of well-being that you're speaking about, I think if it's really opened up the way we're, we're referring to it, it allows what we call the natural world to merge with the human world. And that merging allows, I think, the child to feel that I'm not separate from something that's out there. I'm part of that phenomena called nature. I am the very nature that is the nature out there. And I, I, I love that. I am the very nature that's out there. Yes. That is just the heart of the whole matter. It's so beautiful. Absolutely. And I think once once we can kind of get to that point in working with children where they make that realization, um, then they make the next realization, which is the imagination is a natural act of, of being. Uh, it is, it's not a segment of thought, but it might be the very nature of thought itself. And if that's the case, then it opens up a whole, whole uh, level of... Uh, of thinking by the child to see that they have a sense of control, a sense of empathy with their imaginative life. Um, and I should just mention here too, which I think is certainly relevant to what's going on now um, within our own country, that um, they begin to see that there's the capacity of the imagination to create and the capacity of the imagination to destroy. And that duality, uh, that's that unfortunate problem in which so much of what can be called the imagination can actually move into a very negative, destructive capacity. So um, if, if, if children are aware of that, I think it becomes something that they allow themselves to see, well, how do I integrate the, the creative capacity of the imagination so that it becomes a very, very substantial part of who I am and what I'm doing and where I'm going, so to speak. So do you have conversations of, at this depth uh, with your whole team? I mean, does the whole team as you go in have this same commitment to the quality of the of the student and understanding that what you're awakening yes. in the students is this profound humanity and this profound naturalness. Does the whole team know about that? I would say one of the things that I've been graced with is the people I've been working with. I've worked with for many, many years. Um, often we stay in one school uh, or we've stayed in one school for over eight or nine, 10 years. So not only do we get to know each other 
as a, as a collaborative team, so to speak. But we get to know the children and the parents and the, and, uh, the faculty, teachers, in a way that um, it becomes a community of people working together. Uh, this is not to say that we don't have some uphill battles, obviously, in, within any educational system. There's always going to be some problems. But um, to your initial question here, that the people, again, the artists that I've worked with have all been uh, persons who are totally inspiring to me and totally part of this process that, that we all do together. Uh, so it's it's been a blessing on that level for me to have that kind of uh, community of people that I work with. Well, I'm sure many of my listeners as educational professionals and often in uh, in schools which have alternative means of funding are wondering, how do you fund this? How has this been funded? Because I, with all the school budget cuts and just the general disrespect to uh, school needs, where did the money come from? Well, from many different foundations, New York State Council on the Arts, the city uh, gave us money, school, Board of Education gives us money, from a variety, a variety of, of uh, nonprofit funding sources, um, which in itself was and is, um, you know, definitely another mountain to climb as, you know, as uh, funding at different points of time has, has either dried up or we have to find new sources of funding. So we've been fortunate. <clears throat> we started, um, the Touchstone Center was started in 1969, and um, at arts education, or the Artists in the Schools program, I'll put it that way, um, was just in its infancy. Um, it was not something that um, was a part of the uh, public school situation. And um, I was fortunate to be one of the first persons to go into public school as an artist, a poet in residence in a public school downtown Lower East Side. And nobody had ever heard of this idea of a, of a, of a writer, a poet going to a classroom. But um, um, it, was, it was at that infancy point that uh, there was a lot of interest in figuring out a way of bringing the artist uh, – who could work as a teacher inside or into the into the school itself? Uh, so funding began to sort of creep up and began to be a, a you know part of the process that we had to go through. Is in order to survive, we had to obviously. And is are there are there uh, other groups similar to yours? Um, I know I worked uh, a long time ago with a group called Stages of Learning, which was uh, off Broadway. Um, actors and actresses bringing Shakespeare into the public schools. A man named Flo Floyd Rumor was working out of the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and I had a lovely association with him and their group. So are there other groups like yours oh, yes, uh, yes. around? I would say there, there are definitely many others. But um, I think in terms of the way we worked, uh, we were kind of unique for certainly a long time in terms of working both collaboratively and working very much towards the realization of these of these elemental images and themes, um, so that uh, there was always always at the center of what we did was the nature of nature itself, 
How do we probe that? How do we open that that sense of the world. What about in other states? I mean, again, I, the, the, one of the aims of this podcast is to get this great work out to more and more and more people. Yes. And um, I just wonder about people in other states because, frankly, I just don't hear of it in the public school system. Like I said, I hear about it in Canada public school system sometimes, but not in the Indonesian and the Japan and other places where I've had contacts, certainly not often in America. So do you hear about, is there a network of great programs like yours that you're aware of? Well, there's one organization called the Association for Teaching Artists, which is up in Rochester, New York. And it was one of the first organizations to organize uh, in and around that question. Uh, to bring together all the all the groups of individual artists as well as organizations like Touchstone um, under one roof, and so um, you can go. I, I believe they have a website and a Facebook and so on. You can go to that Facebook and 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 to the website, and you, you'll see there's an enormous amount of information um, about uh, about the diverse groups that exist certainly in the United States. But there's also been a lot of international interest in this too. Different, I know, and certainly in England and uh, other in Australia, New Zealand, all those places um, do have uh, different modulations and theme and variations of what we're talking about. But um, it, you know, it kind of comes and goes. To be honest with you, uh, depending on the political arena and what kind of pressures are being placed upon schools, certainly now. You know, in the last, I would say, last 10 years with the accountability being so high um, in terms of schooling, um, the role of the artist is sometimes put pretty much on the sideline. So you, one has to figure out different strategies of how to get around that, that sideline. And I've been fortunate to work with schools and individual artists and principals to be able to, you know, to integrate whatever we've been doing into, into the schools themselves. That's what I hear time and again, that if you get a principal on your side or a superintendent, that, that that's the way to, to make it work, that it, that it can happen at that level. 100%, yes. Well, Richard, we've been talking a while, so I'm wondering, what have I not asked? What would you like to bring forward here that I haven't uh, inquired about? Well, I thought we began with that beautiful poem about the tree right in the wind. Yes. I wanted to go back to um, a project we did called the Tree of Knowing Project. It was a project we did um, at the East Village Community School in the Lower East Side. And... Um, the concept of the project was to do exactly what I said earlier, was how do we interface with the life of a tree? And so the life of a tree becomes part of us and vice versa. And um, much of what I do as part of the projects that we've done over the years is to, um, is to uh, I, I, I create a poem or write a poem that becomes a sort of centerpiece out of which we work. And so I wrote a poem, um, which was then made into a, a small um, presentation in which uh, a visual artist, Noah Bain, built a little stage, and we presented it to a number of classrooms in the school. And so let me just read to you 
the the poem itself and some of the things that grew out of the poem in terms of children's reaction. And there's unfortunately there's a lot of visual art that went with this. But since you and I are just talking on on a on the basis of a person to person voice voice uh, mail, so to speak, uh, let me just do the reading aspect of it. If you have any pictures of it, you can send it along and then I can correlate it when we do the podcast so people could see some pictures uh, when they go uh, click on it. Now, I did send you the book, actually. Uh, A Tree Lives is... And I oh, think that sure was you did. Oh, right. Oh, I love that book. Oh, good. All right. So I think this is kind of kind of pulled together some of the strands of thinking that you and I have been been uh, thinking through here. Um, and it goes back to that question you asked earlier. Um, how do you, how do you get the the um, the qualities of thought moving so that children can begin to ask the very questions that you and I have been working with as well. So here's the preface to the little stage performance we did. Um, And it goes like this. A tree knows when to let its leaves open. It knows how to take water from its roots, how to bend with the wind, how to grow tall and full and alive. A tree even knows when to sleep, letting its leaves fall to the ground its branches waiting for another spring. But does a tree know the wetness of rain, the cold of winter's snow? Does it know how dark the night becomes, how long a day can be? Can it smell the air? Can it hear the birds? Can it see the sky? Because a tree is, can it ask? Can it answer? Can it like us, imagine. So that was sort of the first thing that I would read with the children. And then we would do the performance based on the poem, which I'm going to read now, which was basically a kind of a puppet theater performance in which a a tree, imagined tree, would come alive within a stage, puppet stage setting. And from there, after the poem was read, we asked all the children to create the tree of imagining, the tree that they could perceive in their own imagination. So here's the poem. In our backyard, a tree lives. In its leaves, spring winds. In its branches, hungry birds. In its roots, moving waters. And inside this tree, another tree lives. In its leaves, distant skies. In its branches, shadows of stars. In its roots, dreaming darkness. And further inside, another tree lives. In its leaves, a moon grows. In its branches, the sun returns. In its roots, a day begins. And further still, Is there another tree, another tree living inside? As you're reading this wonderful poem, I'm looking through the book um, itself and the wonderful, it looks like watercolors. Were they watercolors that the... uh that the kids were uh, using to create these great images to go along with that poem? Yeah, they're very large paintings. 
and they were done in in acrylics. Oh, acrylics, huh? Wow. All right. Well, I can heartily recommend this wonderful book. It's called A Tree Lives, and it's by Richard with illustrations by Noah. Noah Bain. All right. And and you published it yourself out of Touchstone, I see. Yes, Touchstone Center published it. Right, exactly. That's great. Thank you so much for that. If I have a moment, I'd love to just read a couple of, the, you know, the, the, there are a few thoughts here. The children um, wrote as they drew their picture after they've painted their painting of the tree. All right, this is by Valentine, who's seven years old. She said, My leaf needs kindness and stars and snow in order to grow. And this is by Case Casey, age eight. I think we know what a tree dreams, because at night we sleep next to a tree, and it is like two thoughts together. And Donovan, age 11. My roots have a heart, a heart that's the source of the tree. My roots' heart is like water that makes the tree live. I could go on, but anyway, wow. there there are some some children's reaction to the to the sense of what we were talking about of how to bring the interior world of the tree, the interior world of themselves together, and in a sense from that to realize that that at the center of that is the imaginative process, the imaginative act, which it's, is both within nature and within ourselves. So. Going back to your question about well-being, hopefully that's a moment of well-being. Hopefully. I think it rings and sings of (laughs) well-being. Thank you. Oh, and I I just – it must be just so, so rewarding for you to have – really, from 1969, that's kind of a risk, and to go through the ups and downs of what's happened in education since then and – and just to carry this all through, uh, it's just incredible warrior spirit in the, in the best sense of the word. And and I'm just touched, touched to my roots. Well, <laughs> uh, my roots are tingling too. <laughs> so, Richard, just thank you so, so much. And actually, I hope this is the beginning of, of a lot of conversations between us. That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. And thank you so much. Meetings with Remarkable Educators is brought to you in part by our friends and supporters on Patreon. If you enjoy our podcast and want access to enriching gifts for parents and educators, please visit patreon.com slash remarkableeducators and consider becoming a patron. Your support means the world to us and will allow us to continue this essential project. Our sound engineer is Dimitri Young, Our webmaster is Nathan Young, and our all-important social media maven is Cleo Young. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at remarkable-educators.com. This is Bob Lovemore reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere, see you next time.